You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome to episode 63 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. We are glad you've joined us. My name is John Fia. I am your host of the podcast. Casey Lehman, our studio producer, is behind the glass. And if you listen to this podcast, I'm guessing that you are familiar with the New York Times 1619 project. On August 14th, 2019, the New York Times Magazine published 10 essays a photo essay, and a collection of poems and fiction to commemorate the 400th anniversary of the arrival of the first Africans in Virginia. I've written a lot about the project at the Way of Improvement Leads Home blog, and I'd encourage you to go to thewayofimprovement.com and type in 1619 Project into the search engine if you're interested in reading some of those reflections. Since its release, the 1619 Project has now become an ongoing project committed to reframing the American experience by interpreting it through the lens of slavery and race. It includes a lecture series and other public events, a podcast, and resources for school teachers. The project founder and director, Times reporter Nicole Hannah-Jones, writes, quote, 1619 is not a year that most Americans know as a notable date in our country's history. Those who do are mostly a tiny fraction of those who can tell you that 1776 is the year of our nation's birth. What if, however, we were to tell you that the moment that the country's defining contradictions first came into the world was in late August 1619? That was when a ship arrived at Point Comfort in the British colony of Virginia, bearing a cargo of 20 to 30 enslaved Africans. Their arrival inaugurated a barbaric system of chattel slavery that would last for the next 250 years. This is sometimes referred to as the country's original sin, but it is more than that. It is the country's very origin, unquote. Hannah Jones makes a bold claim for the significance of her project. She says that, quote, the goal of the 1619 project is to reframe American history by considering what it would mean to regard 1619 as our nation's birth, unquote. Even before the Times published the 1619 project, debate broke out among politicians, pundits, and American historians about the validity and historical accuracy of the project's claims. Historians wrote op-ed pieces for and against the project's historical framing. Fierce Twitter debates broke out, many of them driven more by politics within and without of the historical profession than by careful historical analysis. It is worth noting that only one American historian, Princeton's Kevin Cruz, a historian of 20th century America, 
contributed to the project. He has said very little about its overall scope and argument, apart from the fact that it represents current scholarship in the field of American history. Annette Gordon-Reed, a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian and former guest on this show, was generally supportive of the project, but she also received some heat when she dissented from the 1619 Project's claim that 1619 rather than 1776 was the nation's quote-unquote founding year. Another one of our previous guests, award-winning historian Manisha Sinha, told The Atlantic that she did not agree that the American Revolution was just the slaveholders' rebellion, but also affirmed that the original United States Constitution, quote, did give some ironclad protections to slavery without mentioning it. But the strongest criticism of the 1619 Project came from an unlikely source, the World Socialist Website. The Marxist voice of the International Committee of the Fourth International wrote several scathing critiques of the project and published interviews with prominent American historians who criticized the history behind it. When historians like James McPherson, Victoria Bynum, Gordon Wood, Richard Cowardine, James Oakes, and Claiborne Carson criticized the project, and historian Sean Wallench joined the fray, although not, I should add, at the World Socialist website. The result was an old-fashioned intellectual brawl. At stake, it appeared, was the nature of American national identity, the meaning of the American Revolution, the importance of race in American life, and the relationship between historical work and contemporary politics. Our guest on today's episode of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast has helped to trigger much of this debate. King's College historian Thomas Mackaman is the World Socialist website writer who interviewed these leading historians and co-authored a recent criticism of the American Historical Review's defense of the project. Stay tuned. Whatever your take on the 1619 Project, I think you will find this interview informative. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. The Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. When you get a chance, head over to recordedhistory.net to check out some of our fellow network podcasts. The Way of Improvement Leads Home is brought to you through the generous donations of Lisa DeGuardi, Richard Green, Ron Schooler, Kate Logan, Margaret Graves, Gretchen Adams, and Bob Beatty. And as always, thanks to Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. We are a listener-supported podcast, and we keep this going by your generous financial donations. 
If you like what you hear and you want to support our work, please head over to thewayofimprovement.com and click support, or go directly to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash thewayofimprovement. The best way to spread the word about the podcast is to tell a friend. You can follow us at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast on Twitter and and on Facebook. If you like an episode, give us a share or a retweet and consider a positive review on iTunes and Stitcher. And now on to our guest. Thomas Mackeman received his PhD in American history from the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign and is currently Associate Professor of History at King's College in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. He is a historian of the late Progressive Era, especially labor and immigration history. Mackabin is the author of New Immigrants and the Radicalization of American Labor, 1914-1921. And over the past several months, he has interviewed historians James McPherson, Gordon Wood, James Oakes, Claiborne Carson, and Richard Cowardine about the history behind the New York Times Magazine's 1619 Project. And he has co-authored his own critiques of the project, all at the World Socialist website. Our guest today on the podcast is King's College history professor and writer for World Socialist website, Tom Mackeman. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, John. Happy to be here. Before we get into these issues regarding the 1619 Projects, tell us a little bit about yourself and your own historical work. By training, I'm a student of labor and immigration history in the late progressive era. I did my PhD at the University of Illinois. A couple years back, I had a book come out called New Immigrants and the Radicalization of American Labor. And uh, here at King's College, uh, which is a small college, I I teach all across American history, which uh, I like a lot. How long have you been there? Uh, I've stopped counting, but it's eight years, I believe. Eight years. Now, you are a historian, but you also do a significant amount of writing for World Socialist website. So tell us about your relationship with that. Do you consider yourself as well an activist? How does your scholarship and your activism or your public writing uh, connect? I guess I I don't really like the term activist that much because I think it has all sorts of connotations. But I would say that there's certainly an intersection between my work as a historian and as a scholar and and what I do for the World Socialist website. And that's uh, to try to bring historical experiences, the lessons of history to working class people. Tell us a little bit about the World Socialist website. For a lot of our listeners, they may not be familiar with the World Socialist website or even uh, the International Committee of the Fourth International. What is this? What do you represent? What does the website represent? And what is your relationship with it? Do you have some kind of editorial position there, a writer? Uh, Tell us a little bit about the website, its convictions, what it represents, and maybe a little of the history of it as well. Well, the uh, the World Socialist website is the online publication of the International Committee of the Fourth International, which stands in the tradition of Leon Trotsky. 
uh, which is to say the, the tradition of genuine Marxism as it came out of the 20th century. Uh, the World Socialist website is the uh, WSWS.org, by the way, I believe is the most read online socialist publication in the world. It's a real international collaboration, bringing uh, daily news and analysis, culture, as well as history to its readership. As you said, my main activity is is to contribute to this historical work. Sure. Tell our listeners, for those of them who may not be familiar with Leon Trotsky and the International Committee of the Fourth International, like, what is this? Uh, you know, you mentioned this is sort of the true Marxist, right, vision. Tell us a little bit about the history and what you advocate for. Well, it's a, it's a really huge question. I know um, it is. I know. I'll, I'll I'll tackle the second part of it first. What we fight for politically is the political independence of the working class, and that's to fight for a a genuine socialist program in the working class. As Leon Trotsky was with Lenin, the co-leader of the, the Russian Revolution of 1917, and represented within the Soviet Union the working class and socialism. And for a variety of reasons that I don't think we can really get into sure. here today, he was pushed out of power by by Stalin, uh, who then uh, consolidated a, a ruthless dictatorship in which he, he really killed all the, the genuine representatives yeah. of, of socialism in the Soviet Union. And so our historical tradition is really the fight for socialism in, in the 20th century and now in the 21st. And you know I think that's really intersecting now with the working class as it moves into struggle in the United States and elsewhere, as we're, yeah. we're seeing in recent months and years. So the international dimension is, you know, the Trotskyite tradition, if you will, is not necessarily a kind of national socialism, right? This is sort of workers of the world unite. Right, which is uh, genuine Marxism, and the term really is Trotskyist, um, Trotskyist. Uh, not, to, not to split hairs, but okay. the Trotskyite was the derogatory term that, that Stalin and the Stalinists used. So let's get into this, your critique of the 1619 Project. First, before we get into the specifics, you know, there's been some who have said, you know, this critique of the 1619 Project, which usually a lot of conservatives have criticized it for its sort of cultural politics or identity politics, I should say. This critique from socialists kind of may have surprised some people. Why might socialists care about how the 1619 Project frames American history? And why have they put so much effort into critiquing it? This seems like a major assault on this New York Times project. Well, I think you're you're right in your premise that the New York Times and its uh, project, which is very heavily funded by the, the corporate endowed Pulitzer Center for Crisis Reporting, they were totally unprepared for, for criticism from the left. Yeah. Why we care, actually, I think this kind of gets us back to, to what you asked before about the history of our movement. I, I mean, I think there are a couple of reasons. First of all, we socialists are predisposed to caring very, very deeply about history and the threat to its falsification. As Stalin consolidated power in the Soviet Union, uh, one of the things, I mean, it was built on a mountain of lies, and those lies extended into historical falsification. So you'd say we're really on guard for this. And as it applies to American history, the the pinnacle events of American history, the American Revolution and the Civil War, and it's it's clear that uh, the 1619 Project is really training its fire 
uh, on those great revolutionary experiences. Mm. And then the other reason I'd say it, it's very clear, the New York Times in launching this project wasn't uh, it wasn't animated by concerns about history, but about the present. And I would say chiefly short-term electoral calculations of the Democratic Party. And also, as I said before, the fact that, that the working class is uh, moving into struggle, and it's doing so above and beyond supposed r racial barriers. Yeah. And this is an effort to, I would say, to confuse that, to pollute it, to inject racial animosity into into the working class. So what would you say to someone who criticizes, you know, your critique of this kind of racial identity politics, right? How would you respond and say, I'm just trying to figure this out. Uh, you know, you obviously view the world through a sort of class Based lens. Are you necessarily against identity politics or are you just against an identity politics that privileges race over class? I'd say that we're, yes, we're against identity politics as a concept that imagines various forms of identity somehow existing outside of the social and economic structure of society, which I think is basically the thrust of identity politics. Okay. I should add, you mentioned some of the criticism of our critique. You know, I'm not a, a philosopher, but it's occurred to me that it's really been sort of a nice object lesson in the uses of logical fallacies. And one has been to say that we're opposed to studying the history of slavery and racism, yeah. which is absolutely not the case. The, the problem, the central problem from a historical and political standpoint with the 1619 Project is that it actually obliterates history and all of the things that historians are really supposed to care about, conflict, uh, contingency, context, cause and effect. I, d I didn't actually mean to do all of that alliteration right yeah. there. Most of our listeners uh, know from some of my writing about the five C's of historical thinking. You're hitting those home, yeah. Just out of curiosity, I didn't prepare you for this question, but where would the International Committee of the Fourth International, where would you find them on the American political spectrum today? Would they be supporters of, say, a democratic socialism like Bernie Sanders, or would they be uh, in some other place, maybe outside of the mainstream or in some kind of third party? I'd say that the presentation of our of our politics would say that it's out of the mainstream, yeah. but to the extent that I, I mean, I think the vast majority of Americans are uh, opposed to war. They're opposed to attacks on democratic rights. Uh, they want uh, good lives and jobs, uh, healthy environment, access to culture. I think that in that sense, we're actually in the mainstream. We're not supporters of of, of Bernie Sanders, who um, whose his political function, which I think he himself acknowledges, is to try to steer um, social discontent back into the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. um, which, by the way, I don't think the Democratic Party is actually going to allow him to do that, yeah. uh, as we're witnessing in in Iowa. Yeah, I think you're right. As a matter of fact, we're actually recording this at about 5.18 on the day after the Iowa caucuses, and I haven't looked yet, but apparently some of the results have been trickling in. If I, At least they promised they'd be in at 5 o'clock, so we'll have to see what happens with that. Let's get back to your point about the 1619 Project, and the word you used was obliterating history. So let's break that down a little bit more. You've written extensively on this, bringing in examples and so forth. What are some of the historical problems with the project? I'd really like to hear you not only talk about the, the history here that's problematic, 
But I'm really curious about the way that you use those kind of C's, right? Context and contingency and those kinds of things. Maybe you could give some examples of how those kind of modes of historical discourse and historical thinking are at work here, or at least the absence of those things are at work here in the way that the 1619 Project presents some of the particulars of the American past. I think you could start with 1619 itself, which was the year the first slaves arrived in colonial Virginia, which the project wants to posit as what it calls the true founding yeah. of the United States. But the way that is presented uh, leaves out the fact that probably those individuals came in as indentured servants, and it leaves out the, the context of the entire Atlantic world. It implies that slavery was a uniquely American, as it says, original sin, which is a biblical metaphor, mm -hmm. and leaves out the fact, for example, only six and a half percent of all of the slaves taken from Africa in the couple centuries of the slave trade were bound for the British North American colonies, what became the United States. The American Revolution is presented as a counter-revolution. It's presented as a, as a conspiracy, really, by the founding fathers to defend and perpetuate slavery against an alleged British emancipation movement which is preposterous. It jumps over a lot of history, it jumps over the abolitionist movement. Again, I said there's no conflict, so the mm -hmm. abolitionists aren't there. Uh, and then we get to the Civil War uh, where Lincoln is presented as a garden variety racist, and that's done by ripping a couple of things that he said over his career out of their context and leaving aside anything that might prove, as Richard Carwardian said in my interview with him, you could muster many, many examples of uh, Lincoln speaking that would prove just the opposite conclusion. And then it goes forward from there. Basically, the position that's being advanced is that racism, as it's referred to anti-black racism, is this supra-historical impulse. Yeah. So it's totally without context and conflict, uh, as James McPherson said in our interview, um, and nobody would deny you know, that there's a racism and it can be found throughout American history, but there's also been anti-racism. Abolitionist movement, of course, being a great example. So another one of those C's, sort of, I don't know if you specifically mentioned this, but this idea of complexity, right? I mean, it's a little more nuanced and complex and messy, if you will, than the way in which the 1619 Project plays it out. Is that a fair position? There's no complexity. I might actually prefer a different C word, contradiction. Clearly, the Declaration of Independence, which inscribed on, you know, the great and powerful statement that all men are created equal, you know, on the banner of the American Revolution, that introduced a very powerful contradiction in American history. And that ultimately is resolved in the American Civil War, which in turn then introduced new contradictions. The sort of history, it's morality tale, it's mythologizing. There's no room for contradiction. Let me go back to what you said about the date 1619 and those sort of 20-odd Negroes, right, that arrive on Virginia shores. You know, there's some debate there about their identity, right? I think Edmund Morgan in his famous book, American Slavery, American Freedom, kind of portrays their identity as sort of up in the air. They weren't really slaves. Uh, they may have been indentured servants. But there's been some other evidence to suggest that, you know, whatever their status was in Virginia, they were clearly on a slave ship, right, being shipped, you know, back and forth. I think they were heading to South America or so forth. So their status is rather complex, I think. I mean, what do you think about that interpretation? 
I'll say first as a caveat that I think that there is room for genuine scholarly dispute and discussion yeah. and debate, but you have to be willing to approach history objectively and honestly. I mean, as far as that, to me, the 1619 and the arrival of the 20-odd Negroes, which I think were on John Rolfe's term uh, words, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it, it really kind of epitomizes the complexity yeah. of the Atlantic slave trade. I think they were Angolans on a Portuguese slave ship bound for New Spain that was taken by Dutch privateers flying right. in a under an English flag, and then they're brought to colonial Virginia, where, um, I mean, I think Morgan and, and other historians are correct. Whatever the history of these individuals, uh, chattel slavery, and then I think the racial basis for it, that's going to take longer, many, many decades more yeah. to come into being. Yeah. One other follow-up question I had. In terms of the American Revolution, now, again, you are arguing, and pretty much several historians have backed you up that you're on solid ground, right? Arguing that the American Revolution was not this attempt to secure a white slaveholder. So, as a socialist or someone who, you know, sees conflict, are you more in line then with an interpretation of the American Revolution driven by, you know, class conflict, some kind of progressive, uh, you know, neo-progressive kind of view of the American Revolution? But then at the same time, you also are, you know, you have Gordon Wood who would reject that. And it's a, it's a revolution about politics and ideas. Is. So is the idea to kind of advance an alternative reading of the American Revolution rooted in much more a sort of class conflict or, or you know, contention? Or is it just kind of to, to uh, suggest that uh, there's much more to this than simply race? No matter where you fall on that kind of classic debate over the American Revolution and its meaning. Again, I think that there's room for differing interpretations on yeah. The specifics of what the American Revolution was. I mean, I believe that Karl Marx saw the American Revolution quite correctly as a, a middle class revolution. Mm -hmm. I believe he wrote in the Civil War that he thought that the Civil War might accomplish for the working class what the American Revolution had accomplished for the middle class. I mean, I think that Gordon Woods, I don't think he's a Marxist, but his great book, uh, The Radicalism of the American Revolution, does, I think, very clearly established the middle class character of the American Revolution. I would recommend that book. I think that one of the things that he establishes, and what's strange is that some of the scholars that have criticized him haven't really taken this up, but I think what that book so clearly establishes is that the American Revolution raised the concept of the dignity of labor and made chattel slavery conspicuous in a way that it hadn't been before. And I think then is key to understanding the conflicts that raised in the antebellum and what's called the sectional crisis and which uh, ultimately fed into the abolitionist movement and the formation of the Republican Party, which was, after all, an anti-slavery right. party, right. and then the Civil War itself. I've heard a couple of interviews over the years with Wood, his kind of civic humanism, his kind of republicanism, right, small-r republicanism, which he really fleshed out in his first major book, The Creation of the American Republic. He has a lot of fans among certain kind of socialists, right, who sees uh, sort of sacrificing for some kind of greater good be a virtue. I've actually heard him talk about him having fans on the left who are very interested in that kind of thing. Have you thought about that at all? Or is that the kind of socialism that you're espousing here? 
You know, I have not thought about that specifically. I would say this is true of a number of the historians that uh, we were able to speak with, Oakes and, and Wood and McPherson, yeah. Carwardine, Victoria Bynum, Clay Carson. They have a real sensitivity to uh, the historical time. With Wood, that's particularly pronounced. You know, I think that a lot of, and some people who maybe identify themselves as, as being left, they want to go back and to the American Revolution and sort of rearrange the chairs and wish that it had done this and right. uh, that it should have given uh, women the right to vote and it should have done this and it should have done that. But, but the problem with that is, well, A, uh, that wasn't happening anywhere yeah. in, in 1776. And B, it is blind to the fact that the American Revolution tremendously advances all of those struggles for equality, and ultimately, of course, also the the working class's uh, struggle for yeah. equality. Now, let's talk about these historians again. I think, you know, the 1619 Project was kind of cruising along. There was some critique from the right about its kind of form of identity politics or its placing of slavery at the center of American history, and, and maybe some of our listeners would probably be familiar with some of those critiques. But then World Socialist website starts dropping interview after interview. I think most of them, if not all of them, done by you with these names you've already mentioned. Gordon Wood, James McPherson, James Oakes, Victoria Bynum, Richard Cowardine, Clay Carson. Uh, your most recent piece has a little spiel. It's not an interview, but from Barbara Fields. You know, these are historians of great stature. They're award-winning historians. There's a lot of Pulitzers there in that group. And they came out very critical uh, of the 1619 Project in these interviews that you did with them. And I'd encourage you to go to World Socialist website and read these interviews for yourself. Um, many of them are extensive. They're really well done. They're long. Um, but they kind of disrupted everything. And then you began to see other historians sort of being forced, I think, to cut through the politics of this and see some of the nuance. Um, you know, in my opening, I mentioned people like Annette Gordon-Reed and Manisha Sinha, who kind of said yes and no, right? They weren't willing to go all the way and reject the 1619 Project, but they certainly now were willing to kind of critique it, I think, at a certain level. And then, of course, Sean Wilentz comes into it a little bit later. I'm just really curious about the kind of backstory of all of this. Did World Socialist Website or did you approach these historians? Why do you think these historians were so willing to come out and write for the website? You know, how did that all work? Did they contact you? Did you contact them? Were they looking for some kind of an outlet to critique uh, the 1619 Project? You know, as, as much as you could tell me, I'm just curious how the whole kind of thing unfolded. There's some backstory there, as you say, and, and that's that we've been doing this kind of work for a long time. We had an interview with James McPherson uh, many years ago done by our cultural writer, writes uh, great movie reviews, David Walsh. I've interviewed uh, McPherson since then, had a previous interview with Gordon Wood. So um, we had done this kind of work. Um, but but other than that, it was that, uh, you know, when this came out, we simply wrote to them yeah. and said, you know, what do you think of the 1619 Project? Here's what we wrote, real criticism of the 1619 Project. And I, I think a pretty strong agreement with uh, a lot of our critique yeah. of it. Um, so it was 
just really writing to them. And, uh, you know, I think that some of the, the national media then said, well, why didn't anybody else think of this? Why didn't anybody else do this? Um, yeah. You know, but we were, of course, we're very happy to be able to speak to these the, these historians. And I, I think they have been real conversations that have been, I think, very enlightening, certainly for me, and but for, for all of our our readership and um, everybody else who has been able to to become in, involved in the discussion in, in an honest way. Probably should have done this. I didn't do my homework on this. Were these done over sort of email or were they done face to face? Most of them, we didn't mention Adolf Reed Jr. at Penn, who is the leading political scientist, and um, also Dolores uh, Janewski in New Zealand. So most of the, I didn't do, I didn't do that one. Yeah. I did interview uh, Reed. Victoria Bynum has been interviewed by us before, and um, someone else conducted that interview. Let me think. I think all of mine, yes, all of mine were in person, okay. with the exception of Richard Carwardine, of course. Uh, he's an Oxford historian. And, right. When you said you wrote letters to these people or, or reached, emailed them, reached out to them and so forth, obviously you picked these historians kind of based on a hunch that you had from reading their material that they might be critical or why these specific historians? I think that their scholarship, I mean, that shows, as I said before, a real serious and honest approach to history, uh, a real sensitivity to historical context. You know, I think obviously with Wood and McPherson, I think you're talking about respectively, in my opinion, the leading historians of the American Revolution right. and the Civil War. Um, James Oakes, um, uh, I highly recommend his books. They're all very good. The Scorpion Sting kind of tuned me into um, reaching out to him. I think it's a it's an excellent book. Do you have do you have other historians now kind of wanting to talk? I mean, do you have others lined up? I mean, has there been kind of other historians who say, hey, I want to I want to write about this too. interview me. Um, are you reaching out to other historians? Is this a continuing ongoing project? Tell me a little bit more about where this series is headed. We're certainly not going to drop this because I think it's a it's a real struggle for the I mean, it's a struggle over. American history, with all of the the implications that that flow from that, uh, and uh, there are um, a number of interviews in the pipeline, so to speak. I think there's a great deal of opposition uh, to the 1619 project out there. I think any any serious historian really should be very disturbed by it. I think the, if you follow the lead writer, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, what she, she's been on a national speaking tour, and if you follow at all what she's been saying, I don't think that our what we're saying about the project is at all an exaggeration or overstatement. It really is uh, a, a racialist uh, mythologizing of American history, and uh, that's that's got very dangerous implications. So we have more historians lined up, but you can't speak to them yet. We don't have much time left. Let me just ask you sort of one more sort of general question here. Uh, the 1619 Project is really sort of making a hard push toward dissemination. They obviously have the power of the New York Times uh, behind them. They have curriculum now. They have all kinds of teaching resources, podcasts, and so forth. What would you say to someone, you know, say, uh, like maybe like me, who teaches the first half of the United States survey uh, every year? It's really, really hard to avoid uh, these important questions of slavery and race uh, in that period. 
I mean, it's hard to think about sort of northern industrial America in the early 19th century without thinking of sort of cotton and slaves sort of driving uh, that economic growth to one degree. Now, whether you agree with like Ed Baptist and others who have made a case that it's all about slavery or not, certainly slavery had something to do with it or where... Um, you know, the three-fifths clause in the, in the Constitution and so forth, where, you know, slavery was an important part of the story. And I don't think you're denying that. But what would you say to kind of a high school teacher out there or a college professor, uh, you know, who maybe teaches at a place like King's or Messiah College, where I teach, um, about how to deal with slavery? Is there anything kind of redeemable about the 1619 Project? Is there anything there that's worth sharing with students? Or at least, you know, maybe they touched on a sort of overlooked uh, or forgotten or important dimension of American history that perhaps needs highlighting. Well, how would you respond to that kind of critique of your uh, work? I, I'm going to be very blunt. I think that there's nothing redeeming about the 1619 project. Uh, it, um, I, I think it has to be taken as a whole. And the the lead essay by uh, Nicole Hannah Jones, as they say, it's what frames it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it's based on a series of of false historical claims. No serious teacher uh, can can want that for their students. Um, and and then I think for for what regards the the rest of the the project um, uh, the Desmond article the the second one uh, which is borrowing uh, you mentioned Baptist the, from the literature on uh, slavery and capitalism uh, uh, is making making an argument that that all of American capitalism is descended from from slavery mm. and then and, and then I think going on with the rest of it for whatever their their merits and or, or lack thereof all of the other essays are sort of fall into the fold and, and they're and they're painting a picture really of, of all sorts of social problems that exist in the United States today uh, obesity traffic jams yeah. uh, and so on that that all comes directly out of slavery but but there are many many more proximate causes uh, than that so I, I don't think that it, I don't think that it has uh, value uh, I mean I think that there there there's a lot of really wonderful material out there uh, and one thing that's going to be happening is we're going to be publishing these interviews uh, and uh, and coming out with our own material uh, and uh, and I think that'll be uh, a very very good alternative. Uh, to uh, 1619 project. So this material that you're working on is sort of a count, sort of an alternative or a counter view, um, in which uh, you know you're also working. What are what is this material? School lesson plans. Um, you know, I mean, will these be will these will this material you're working on be sort of framed as an anti 1619 project, or will they be framed in a kind of positive way? Uh, well, I mean, I think both. I, I, I think it's going to. Um, I, I mean, I, th- I think really the, from a historical standpoint, the, the. I mean, it's, the argument has been won already. I mean, I, I think that you can't really look at what we've done, the, the interviews and the material we've produced, and, and not and not come away with that. Um, so, um, so that yes, that you know, as a critique. Um, and uh, I would say even a, a dismantling of the 1619 project. I think it's had that effect. But yes, uh, also if you look at the interviews and the other things we've done, I, I think it supplants that with a uh, a much uh, richer 
and uh, uh, more um, uh, powerful interpretation uh, of American history, and, and one that I think we, we should hasten to add is, is actually uh, rooted in, um, in historical fact. Our guest today has been Tom Mackeman. He is a writer for World Socialist website. He is a historian who teaches at King's College. He is also one of our uh, uh, most prolific critics of the 1619 Project, the New York Times Project on Slavery and Race in America. Uh, Tom, great conversation. Thanks for your willingness to come on the program. Thanks so much for having me, John. I appreciate it. All right. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. debate what the narrative of American history should look like, or whether the New York Times 1619 project is more political than it is historical. But I would say that we cannot understand colonial America, the American Revolution, or much of early American history without making slavery central to the story. There's just too much good historical scholarship out there to see this any other way. I've been teaching the first half of the United States survey for over two decades. We talk about white colonial settlement, slavery, Native Americans, political history, religion, presidential elections, democracy, industrialization, Southern culture, the Western ideas that drove the American Revolution, manifest destiny, and the coming of the Civil War. How does one teach these things without slavery? Slavery is everywhere in this course. It constantly rears its ugly head. There is no way to tell the story without it. It is central. I don't advertise my course as a U.S. survey focused on race or slavery, and I don't put much language in my syllabus in this regard. Let me do that again. I don't advertise my course as a U.S. survey focused on race or slavery, and I don't put such language in my syllabus. But these topics just come to the surface naturally and start to shape the narrative. What the New York Times is proposing in the 1619 Project is not really that radical. I don't see a whole lot of quote-unquote reframing here. The Times is not as revisionist as it thinks it is. Just look at any good high school or college textbook. Slavery and race have been central to the study of American history for several decades now. While I am not yet ready to claim that 1619 represents the new birth of the United States, nor am I convinced that we should interpret 1776 as primarily an attempt to secure white supremacy in America. I do think that there's plenty of room at the center of the American story for African Americans, as well as Native Americans, women, working people, white people, and others. We can't forget, for example, that Western ideas, as articulated in some of our founding documents, and even by people of Christian faith, provided the impetus for the abolition of slavery. At the same time, Western ideas led to racism and slavery. History is messy and complex, 
And anyone who wants to wrestle, I think, with the 1619 Project and its historical validity and accuracy must remember this. So thanks for listening. I hope uh, this podcast episode was informative for you. Uh, Come back next time. And until we meet again, may your way of improvement always lead home. This has been a production of The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewayofimprovement.com. The Way of Improvement Leads Home is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Check out other podcasts on the network by heading over to recordedhistory.net. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcatcher of choice so others may more easily find this podcast. And let's continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. Follow us at T-W-O-I-L-H Podcast. The podcast was brought to you through the generous support of Gretchen Adams, Richard Green, Margaret Graves, Kate Logan, Lisa DeGuardi, Ron Schooler, and Bob Beatty. Also, many thanks to our sponsor, Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. The podcast was recorded at the High Center Recording Studios in Messiah College. Thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overhaul. Many thanks to our guest, Jeffrey Engel. I've been your studio engineer and producer, Casey Lehman, and your host, as always, is John Fia. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.